Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Tuesday broadcast of Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett with Hickory Ridge Community Church, and I want to thank you for listening. And all of you who listen to the broadcast, I know many of you are driving home from work, and so I'm praying for you as you're driving home. Maybe you're going up 64, down 64, or maybe you're coming across the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel, or maybe you're coming through the Monitor Merrimack. I'm not sure where you are on the highway, uh, but most of you are probably listening on your ride home from work. So thank you for going to work today. Thank you for working so hard and uh, just be careful as you're driving home and uh, you know there's some crazy drivers out there and I love living in Hampton Roads and uh, the people of Hampton Roads are the friendliest people on the planet that is until they get behind the wheel <laughs> it seems like some people that get behind the wheel and they have a personality change but anyway be careful out there and if that guy in front of you wants to cut you off go ahead and let him go and uh, it's not worth getting all worked up over. Go ahead and let him go and uh, just wave and say hello to him as he gets in front of you. But be careful out there, okay? Well, listen, we're having an exciting study on the book of Romans. We are in Romans chapter 2, and as we go through this whole book of Romans, it's going to take us probably a year to do it, but we're taking it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Uh, This is actually the sixth message on the book of Romans, and we're only in chapter number 2. Uh, so we are working our way through. I love the book of Romans. Some people have called the book of Romans the Mount Everest of our theology. In other words, there's some tough things that you go through. As a matter of fact, the first three chapters, from chapter 1 all the way up to chapter 3, down to verse number 20, seems like it's really kind of harsh and kind of negative, and is dealing with some really important stuff, however. All of chapter number 1, Paul is talking about the power of the gospel. And he's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And as you think about that power of the gospel, that is the dunamis power from which we get the word dynamite, right? Uh, The gospel can blow up your false pretenses. The gospel can blow up all of your false ideas and all of the philosophies of this world. The gospel has that power to break strongholds in your life. The gospel has that power to forgive you of your sins. Uh, That's the power of the gospel. The gospel will make a change in your life. But Paul spends all of chapter number one talking about what happens when we reject the gospel. Now, he talks about how we know for sure that God does exist. He talks about creation and the beauty of creation. But he talks about the fact that when you reject the gospel, you start to worship creation more than the creator. He also talks about the fact that you have no excuse if you reject the gospel. You can't say, well, I didn't know about the gospel because God says he has given us a conscience And our conscience reveals to the fact that there are certain things that are right, there are certain things that are wrong. And our conscience reminds us that we have made some major blunders in our lives. I guess we could go ahead and call them sins. Let's call an ace and ace, right? We have fallen in sin. We have fallen short of the glory of God. And our conscience convicts us. You know, if you ever make a judgment call, you have a conscience that tells you that something's right or something's wrong. God gave us that conscience, not so that we could be these self-proclaimed judges, but so that we could realize one day we're going to be judged because we know that some things are right, some things are wrong. The gospel allows us to be set free from our sins. Well, today we're looking at Romans chapter number two. Romans chapter two. We're looking at five areas of hypocrisy. I told you yesterday, one out of four Americans are afraid of being audited. 
I don't know about you, but I don't like anybody auditing me. Uh, nobody enjoys that process. But if you're honest, you have nothing really to hide. Paul now begins to transition his writing to the church at Rome. First, he talked about those who reject the gospel of chapter number one. That would be the world. Anybody who refuses to receive the gospel. In chapter number two, for verses one through 16, Paul talked about those who are religious people who wrongly use the gospel. How are they going to be judged? And we talked about seven areas of their judgment or seven bases that God uses to judge us. That is religious people. And today we're going to look at how God judges the hypocrites. How does God do an audit on religious people? Specifically, he's talking about the Jews, but that is an, there's an application to us. So let's look at Romans chapter 2 as review, verses 17 to 21. Paul says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God, if you know his will and you approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law... If you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law and the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? If you preach against stealing, do you steal? Now here, this is a very important point. Paul is saying that we're going to be judged based upon what we teach. Now I know I'm specifically talking about Jews, but the application is to us. Now, it's important to notice this point. Paul says, do you teach against something like stealing, but do you steal? And we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes as we get through the broadcast. First of all, we're going to be judged upon what we're teaching. So here's the question. Do I have the philosophy of life that is saying that you do as I say, not as I do? That is a hypocritical teacher, right? So you'll be judged on that. Secondly, you're going to be judged on ritualism. So the question would be, is my ritualism a reflection of an interchange in my life? Paul is talking specifically about circumcision and how that was being abused and how that was being forced upon people. And as a result, they were trying to avoid persecution. They were trying to avoid uh, being ostracized. So circumcision was a ritual that was not used as an expression of your faith, but rather as a reason to get out of persecution. It was also a reason to be bragging, right? Now, so many times when you talk to people, you discover that the same thing is present today. Oftentimes when I'm talking about people and I said, hey, now do you know for sure you're going to heaven? I had one guy not too long ago said to me, oh yeah, I know I'm going to heaven. I've been baptized. I said, well, I didn't ask you for baptized. I'm glad you were baptized. But baptism in and of itself will not put you into heaven. We go to heaven not because we've been baptized. We go to heaven because we've been born again. We have accepted the free gift of salvation. Now, baptism is an outward expression of that inward faith. That is the first step of obedience once we have received the free gift of salvation. But baptism in and of itself does not save you. I had one guy tell me one time that he was saved and he was going to heaven because he took the sacraments. That would be communion. And I explained to this man, listen, we're not saved just because we take the sacraments. Communion is to be done in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. So I want to drive home the point and ask you this question. Is your ritualism a reflection of an inner change? You see, reality with God is not a matter of outward conformity. 
not outwardly conforming to religious rituals, but rather of obedience that results from God changing your heart. In other words, it is an expression of how God has changed our hearts. When we're spelling the word track today, we're going to be judged based upon what we teach. We're going to be judged based upon how we handle ritualism. We're going to be judged, letter A, on our actions. Now, we're down to verse 22 of Romans chapter 2. Paul says, you who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, remember Paul previously said, don't teach against stealing when you're stealing. Now he's saying, you really hate idols, but you're stealing from the temple. So we look at this little verse here. And, and so Paul is driving home the point that if, if I only worship God, if I only put my emphasis on worshiping him, I have overcome worshiping idols. That's good. But here we discover that the Roman believers, they were no longer worshiping idols, but they were doing something else. They were robbing the temples. We're going to explain that in just a moment. But look at verse number 23. You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So when we're talking about actions, okay, are your actions consistent with what you profess to believe? The rules apply to others, but they don't apply to me. If that is your mindset, you will one day be judged for those actions. Paul was in essence saying to the Romans, they say a lot. They say, don't do this, do that. They hate a lot. They hate idols. And they boast a lot. Say, we don't do that anymore. But as you look at this, we ask ourselves the question, do my lips match my lifestyle? So let's back up just a little bit. Back to verse 22, where Paul says, you who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Now, it's important for us to understand Roman culture at that time. As a person came and, and was a believer in Christ, he understood that he should no longer live an adulterous lifestyle. So what they would do, instead of falling into the sin of committing adultery, they would just divorce their wife and get married to somebody else. I guess you could say that Roman culture was very much like our culture. Uh, you would be married numerous times, and a man could leave his wife for just about any reason. Maybe he likes somebody else better, so I'm going to leave my wife because I like this, uh, this lady over here. Or, or maybe his wife burnt the toast. Or, or maybe she didn't do what he thought she should do, and, and he'd just walk away and divorce her and marry somebody else. In other words, it was so prevalent that they were actually living in adultery, and they were trying to legalize it by getting married to somebody that they really wanted to have an affair with. You know, there's a reason why Jesus in, in, in Matthew chapter 19 talks and gives a lot of teaching on adultery. Now, there's some hard teaching when it comes to marriage and, and remarriage. But Jesus himself said that, uh, you know, if you marry somebody who has been divorced, you commit adultery. Now, how could that be? Uh, maybe Jesus is identifying that culture, and he's saying, you know, you guys have tried to say, I don't commit adultery, uh, and, and I don't live in an adulterous lifestyle. I've been married five or six times. <laughs> I remember years ago, we had a, a couple come and join our church, and I said, well, what is bringing you to our church from this other church? And they said, well, you know, we were going through some difficulties in our marriage, and so we went to the pastor, and we decided that we'd get some help from the pastor. And the pastor sat down with us, and, and the pastor said to us, well, I think I can really help you. 
Uh, he says, I've been married a few times. In fact, I've been married five times, so I think I know a little bit about marriage. And they said, how can we go to a pastor who has been married five times and learn anything about marriage? And, and I agreed with them. I said, well, that pastor was teaching uh, how not to be married, okay? Not how to stay married. And so when we look at this subject of adultery, I think it's, it's so important that we as brothers and sisters in Christ understand the significance of marriage. One man, one woman for one lifetime. The enemy loves to destroy marriages. The enemy loves to, to wreak havoc within the home. And why is that? Because the enemy knows something about marriage that I think oftentimes we don't even think about. You know, marriage is actually a picture of the gospel. It is a picture of God's unconditional love for us. You know, if you're a husband listening to me, you ought to have unconditional love for your wife. You say, well, you don't understand what my wife has done to me. You don't understand how she lives. Uh, she is not living a good Christian lifestyle. I want you to know that your wife needs your love now more than ever. You didn't marry a perfect spouse. Your wife needs you to love her unconditionally. That's what love is all about. Love is a choice. It is a decision. It is not a feeling. I want you to know sometimes I don't have those loving feelings for my wife. But I've discovered something. If I will pretend I love her, it is much easier for me to start loving her. If I live in this mindset that I'm going to be bitter toward her, I will never fall in love with her. Well, there's another subject that Paul addresses here in verse 23. Not only does he say, if you say people shouldn't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? He says, you abhor idols, but then you rob the temples. Now, this is pretty interesting what Paul sets up here. He was looking at the Roman believers. He says, you know, you guys have been saved from idol worship. And praise God that you no longer worship stone or wood or, or, or these images. You have been set free. Now you worship the one and true only God. But you're not really off the hook because you really hate idol worship. You really get upset about those who are still worshiping idols. But then when we, when we look at our own lives, we discover they were robbing from the temple. Now we have several church vans. And over the last few months, somebody has come and stolen the catalytic converters. It's happened a few times. Now, I don't know about you, but that kind of gets under my skin, right? Uh, that somebody would steal catalytic converters from the van sitting in a church parking lot. I tell you what, that is pretty audacious, isn't it? Now, Paul is not saying that uh, if you steal the catalytic converters from Hickory Ridge Community Church, you're robbing from the temple. Uh, now, now, you shouldn't be stealing those catalytic converters, okay? And, uh, and I'm praying for the one who, who has stolen those catalytic converters. I pray they get saved, right? And uh, that they, they will change their ways. But Paul is looking at this subject, and he's not talking about stealing catalytic converters. He's talking about those who rob temples. He's talking about the Jews, right? Talking about believers. They abhor idol worship, but they are actually robbing from the temples, Paul, I believe, is referring back to what Malachi said in Malachi 3, 9 and 10. Malachi brings an accusation against the people. And he says, you have robbed God. You have robbed this temple. And the people said, wait a minute. We haven't stolen from the temple. How could you even think such a thing? How have we stolen from the temple? And Malachi says, through taking tithes and offerings. In other words, you weren't going in there and stealing things from the temple. You were withholding your tithe to the temple. And Malachi says, that is like robbing 
from God. You're taking what belongs to God and you're keeping it for yourself. Well, Paul also in verse 23 talks about those who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So I said all that in verses 22 to 24 to remind you and to remind me that we will be judged according to our actions. We'll be judged according to the rituals that we perform. We're going to be judged according to what we teach. And let us see, we're going to be judged based upon the cravings that we have. You know, as we look at people, oftentimes we try to make a judgment call on what motivated them to do what they did. Now, we don't know a person's heart. We can look at the actions that they commit. Uh, We can look at what they do, but we don't know the motivation of their heart. But there is somebody who does. That is God. Did you know that you're going to be judged based upon the cravings that you have? Look what Paul says in verse 29, Romans chapter 2. He says, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In other words, a Jew who is looking for the praise of man is not getting the praise from God. If we are craving the praise of man, we will forfeit the praise of God. Jesus put it this way in John 5, 44. And he does it in the form of a rhetorical question. Now, I'm sure that your pastor will ask a rhetorical question a few times in the sermon, and he's not expecting you to answer that question because the answer is self-evident. Jesus says the same thing. Jesus says in John 5, 44, How can you believe since you accept glory from another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? In other words, Jesus says it is impossible for you to receive salvation and glory that comes from God if you are hung up in receiving and accepting the glory from somebody else. What a powerful statement that is. We will be judged based upon what we crave. Do you crave to have God say of you, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or do you crave the applause of men? Do you love having center stage? You know, I'm always leery of a person who says, I want to get up and testify, especially when they are brand new to our church and we don't know who they are. They want to get up there and and they want to testify. I say, you got to wait just a moment. We got to see where your heart really is. I don't know if you've been watching the Olympics, but I, I have spent a little bit of time watching the Tokyo Games. You know, unlike most Olympic athletes that are making headlines these days, Daniel Jervis did not win a medal. In fact, he came in fifth in the men's 1,500-meter light freestyle. After the event was over, however, he said something that is worthy, I think, of global attention. He began by saying, I want to thank my village of Resolven. I want to thank my church, Stardust Baptist Church, and Amiford Church in Amiford, who have been really supportive of me. Everyone back home has been praying for me. And then he adds this statement. The thing I'm most proud of in my life is that I'm a Christian. And obviously, God was with me tonight. And I'm really grateful to be representing him. (laughs) Now, isn't this amazing? Generally, when somebody's a Christian and they they win the gold, they say, all glory goes to God. But here we have a guy who took fifth place. 
You know, it's fairly common to see competitors win and, and thank God for their success. However, skeptics can, can dismiss such faith, no matter how sincere it is, as the natural result of success. They often claim, as Satan said of Job, you've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch him with all that he has and he will curse you to your face. In other words, Satan said, if you allow him to lose, he won't praise you anymore. If he comes in and loses everything, loses his health, loses his wealth, loses his family, he's going to go ahead and curse you right to your face. Well, I'm so glad that this young man, Daniel, said, even though I didn't take first place, I am still thanking the Lord. You know, as I look at the story of Job, he was an amazing character. Every time I start feeling sorry for myself, I just read the book of Job. And I said, man, I have nothing to complain about. So as you look at this whole point, when you think about how you're going to be judged for the cravings that you have, one of the ways that you know that your cravings are not pure is that you are always blaming somebody else for your failures. Whose praise do you live for? If you live for the praise of men, every time you make a mistake, every time you fall short, every time you miss the mark, you blame somebody else. In John 12, Jesus said, Nonetheless, Many of the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise from God. Listen, I want you to know that following Jesus will cost you something. You know, a faith that costs nothing is worth nothing. In Luke chapter 14, large crowds were gathering together and traveling with Jesus, and they were turning to him and they would say, if anyone comes to me, Jesus would say, if anybody comes to me and doesn't hate his father and his mother and his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters, and, and yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now notice Jesus doesn't say, it's going to be hard to be a disciple. He says, you can't. And then he says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Well, we've got one more point uh, to cover today. We're going to be judged based upon what we teach. Are we living in congruence with what we teach? We're going to be judged based upon the rituals in which we live our lives under. We're going to be judged based upon the actions of how we live our lives. We're going to be judged based upon the cravings that we have. Do we want the praise of God or would we want the praise of men? And then last but not least, we're going to be judged based upon what we know, our knowledge. In verses 19 and 20, Paul says, If you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law of the embodiment of knowledge and truth, that is how you're going to be judged. When we look at this, that little phrase, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, this is a type of knowledge that your body knows how to act. It is something that is so embedded in you that it becomes part of who you are. Now, if you ever had the privilege of trying to teach somebody how to drive, you know something uh, that is, is missing in new drivers. They may know the laws of the land regarding the, the speed limit, and, and they may have a knowledge of how to drive. They may have a working knowledge of how the vehicle operates, but they don't have the embodiment of knowledge and truth because they don't have the experience. For example, if you've been driving for a long time, 
you instinctively know because you have created certain muscle memory that as you come into an intersection, you're not just looking at your lane, you're looking at that intersection. And if you see out of the corner of your eye as you're about to come into this intersection, another vehicle also coming into this intersection, and you can tell by looking at them, they're going way too fast to stop at the intersection. What do you do? You slow down so that person will go ahead of you. You avoid an accident. How do you do that? It is because you have the embodiment of knowledge and truth. A new driver doesn't even think on that level. They're going to go barreling through that intersection and they will be in an accident because they haven't developed that muscle memory. It's the same when they're driving down the road. If traffic begins to slow, uh, you understand that you're looking way down the road. You say, wow, way down the road, things have stopped and I'm going to slow in anticipation for traffic stopping. Where a new driver doesn't have that habit created in their lives. Here we discover that Paul is reminding them that because they're Jews, because you're a Christian, you have the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you will be judged based upon how you carry that out in your body. Well, maybe you're listening to me and you say, well, I I don't know about all this. I want to ask you one question as we close. Am I living up to what I know? That's what God's going to judge you upon. Am I living up to what I know? Well, I hope the broadcast has been a blessing to you today. I'm praying for you today. And if I can help you in any way, feel free to call me at 757-421-7500. We'd love to pray for you. love to help you any way that I can. Thank you so much for listening today. God bless you. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3220 South Battlefield Boulevard, Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, you go to our website at www.hrcc7.org. No matter what you're going through, remember, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.